0: Hello friends, welcome back. My guest today is Brian Murarescu, lawyer and author, and we are talking about the psychedelic origins of Western civilization. The mysteries of the ancient world are just getting stranger and stranger. Did Plato and Marcus Aurelius and thousands more attend a secret psychedelic ceremony which formed the basis for the Christian sacrament? So today expect to learn why an annual parade finished with a secret ceremony in ancient Greece, why the Christians may have wanted to keep this a secret, what it was like to research in the Vatican's secret archives, the implications if all this is true, and much more. This is like real life Dan Brown shit. That actually is. Secret societies, a crazy potion that lets you die before you die. Uh, Brian is, he's spent 12 years researching this. I first heard him on Joe Rogan and I just had to get him on. So, yeah, I really hope that you enjoy this. It's just a fascinating, cool story. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Brian Murarescu. You're a qualified lawyer. Why are you talking about the psychedelic origins of Western civilization?
1: That's a great question. I feel like uh, I'm. I'm still a barrister. Still, ba- do you, is that what you call it, barristering?
0: Uh, l- lawyering. Law- being a being a barrister, being a ba- barristering. Yeah. If anyone can tell us if the verb is to barrister. Uh, <laughs>
1: So, I still do that, believe it or not. Um, I'm still in good standing in New York State and Washington, D.C. for the moment. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. I just I started reading about psychedelics and I couldn't stop.
0: But weren't tempted to try them? You actually, uh, sorry, decided not to try them. You remained uh, psychedelically uninitiated uh, throughout the writing of your book.
1: My virginity was and remains intact.
0: Is that going to change at any point soon?
1: Um, soon, in the coming years, I'm not sure exactly when, but as it becomes legal and as the facilities come online, where you can have an experience that is uh, you know, responsible and scientifically rigorous and also, for me, authentically sacred and historical, I think that'll be my moment.
0: It's going to be so fascinating to see what happens to you, having spent over a decade thinking, reflecting considering and then also going into wondering what other people's experiences are like the the meta experience what did they think what did they feel Man, whatever it is that you end up going through is you're going to be shot into another universe
1: i can't wait uh, i'm always part of me is always thinking the great irony of all of this would be if absolutely nothing
0: happened <laughs> <laughs> all this time all this time <laughs> I was wrong. Fucking what a waste. It was all a big troll. Uh, is there a movie coming out? Is there a movie coming out about the
1: book? Um, we, we hope so. Um, at least a, a documentary series. So we're busy pitching that to different networks and streamers uh, here in the US. But obviously, it'll have a, a global audience.
0: Dude, that's so cool.
1: Yeah, man. We have that, that's, that's been a, you know, a big part of my, my job the past few weeks and months.
0: But negotiating what sort of a series it should be, who should play you, can we get Tom Hanks, all that sort of stuff.
1: Uh, all, all of the above, and where do you go, and how do you get there, and why are you doing it, and is this, you know, is this one episode, is this a thousand episodes, and how do we pair the mystery and suspense with the rigorous academic scholarship, and you know, make it make it a feast for the eyes and for the ears. It's got to be a killer soundtrack, right?
0: Nice, yeah. So it's going to be barristering. Writing, producing. The triple threat. That's the that's the big triple threat.
1: That's my new business card, Chris.
0: I love it. I love it. If you need an agent, speak to me. So right, on, <laughs> What what's the story arc of history that you're following here? What are we what are we talking about?
1: Right. So it's um, you know, I call it the best kept secret in history, which are which is not my words. These are the words of Houston Smith, uh, who if you've never heard of him, he's one of the most influential scholars of the 20th century. And what he was referring to are essentially two questions. Number one, did the ancient Greeks use drugs to find God? And number two, did the earliest Christians inherit part of that tradition? Um, If the answer to both of those questions is yes, then it means that, you know, like Western civilization as we know it was somewhat founded on a visionary experience. And Christianity, the world's biggest religion today with two and a half billion people, might be tapping into those same psychedelic waters. So these are big questions, obviously very controversial, and there's lots of great literature out there and artifacts you can go hunt down. But what I tried to do over the past 12 years is, is sniff out the hard scientific data to really make you know heads or tails of this for the first time.
0: Why does it matter, or why is there a distinction between it happening just for the Greeks and it happening for also the foundation of Christianity?
1: Well, so, the first chapter of my book is called Identity Crisis, and it talks a lot about this. I mean, at, at, at some point, or for a long time, there, there was no separation between church and state. And I feel like in the West, we're still grappling, at least in the United States. Uh, we're, we're still, well, in the UK as well, we're still grappling with this sense of the sacred and the profane. I mean, so the, the old narrative is that the ancient Greeks birthed uh, political life, as we know it, and gave us the arts and sciences and the concept of a university. And, you know, we took their theaters and made it into Hollywood and we took their Olympic games and we made it into the sports industry and all this stuff that they gave us, you know, they were able to do all this. But when it came to the meaning of life, you know, they got it all wrong is the prevailing narrative. And here comes Jesus and Christianity and the Christianized Roman Empire. And they're the ones who go off and and evangelize and they're the ones who colonize the Americas, for example. And Africa and Asia, it was this, um, it was this evangelization movement, you know. Um, we live in twenty twenty one anno domini, the year of our Lord. I mean, so there, there's all these identity crises that I think we're still grappling with. Like, sometimes we're Greek and rational, and sometimes we're very Christian and and irrational, faith based. Um, and which, which is it, and how do we heal that divide? Um, so, if you can answer both of those questions, and weirdly, if psychedelics is the thing that unites the ancient Greeks. And the Christians, when you know we're hard up trying to figure out anything that unites them, uh, what a what a powerful story!
0: Absolutely. So where do we begin? What's the what, what even suggests? Why psychedelics?
1: So I mean, I, I spent years asking myself the same question. It starts for me. It started in 1955. Uh, I wasn't there, uh, but in the, the, this guy, Gordon Wasson. Uh, who, uh, like me, was working on Wall Street. He was working uh, at JP Morgan, this former banker turned ethnomycologist. He became obsessed with mushrooms and went all around the world hunting them. Uh, we think he's the first to really document this ceremony in the Mazatecs of Mexico. Uh, Psilocybin containing mushrooms under the tutelage of Maria Sabina, he takes the uh, mushrooms in a very ritual setting. And he has a crazy, you know, visionary experience. But what's weird about Gordon is that instead of saying just, oh, wow, wasn't that some crazy geometry or crazy visuals or what the hell was that? This guy, because he's well read and lettered, you know, he says, I think that I've tapped into the platonic archetypes. He says that these divine mushrooms must have been what was behind the ancient mysteries, Uh, because what happened to me was so real, so vivid and so clear that I think I've tapped into the realest version of reality. And if I just did that here in 1955, maybe our ancient ancestors, 2,500 years ago, were doing the same thing because psychedelics are freaking, they're a mind buster. Uh, and so when someone like that is doing psychedelics and thinking about the classics and history, um, without doing them, I was relying on his testimony to kind of ferret out the same details. I was reading these studies coming out of Hopkins very similar kind of testimony. One and only dose of psilocybin, crazy visuals, crazy mystical insights. And the first thing I think of is Gordon Wasson and his theory that maybe the Greeks were doing this. And I flashed to this book from 1978, where they were uh, spouting this controversial theory that psychedelics are the roots of Western civilization. And off I go. Why?
0: like that's a a wonderful postulated theory from some guy that once did mushrooms, but that doesn't necessarily justify doing 12 years of a book
1: on it. (laughs) That's a good good point. (laughs) My wife mentioned something similar at some point. (laughs) Um, So where's the, I mean, that's my point. So where's the data? So in 1978, what they had was really interesting literary references around what was happening at Eleusis. And so for those who don't know Eleusis, is like the spiritual capital of the ancient world. It survives for about 2,000 years. That is to say, as long as Christianity over the past 2,000. It it called to everybody from Plato in classical Athens to Marcus Aurelius in the Roman Empire centuries later. And they all talk about this vision. They all talk about this life-transforming event. Like, If you went to Eleusis, um, you confronted death and became an immortal. Only people who'd gone there and had this experience walked away from it guaranteed of an afterlife that's where you went to get your afterlife Uh, and so it's this really central pivotal moment in greek history in the history of western civilization Uh, and there's some testimony from plato and others that they saw this thing and there's old poetry like the hymn to demeter uh, from a couple centuries before that which talks about this magic potion and it lists out the ingredients of this potion called the kukion um, and what we're told in the ancient literature and the ancient sources that survived, and not much survived because this was all secret, but what we're left with is the idea of this magical beer that propelled this vision. And it was water, mint, and barley, which, again, is not something to stake 12 years of your life on. But according to Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman, who discovers LSD in 1938, they were kind of reading between the lines. And they said, it's not water, uh, you know, barley, and mint. It's water ergotized barley and mint. So barley that had been infected by ergot. Ergot is where we get LSD. And it's a really, really elegant theory because ergot is totally natural. It pops up on all the cereal crops. And uh, it's interesting to think that that may have been there 2,500 years ago, or a lot, lot longer, by the way, which I explore in the book. But again, no hard scientific data to support that.
0: What would be... The reason for someone, an intellectual like Plato or a, an emperor like Marcus Aurelius, what would be the reason for them to go to this bizarre place and have some odd ritual and change their state? I thought that they would be much more down to earth, grounded humans.
1: I think that's the thing that brought them down to earth. Uh, so, you know, Marcus Aurelius, uh, classic textbook Stoic. Um, He didn't just go to Eleusis. And again, this place survives from the ancient Greek times to the ancient Roman times. And Marcus Aurelius is the perfect example of why, because someone like him, we think he's one of the only lay people to go inside the Holy of Holies in this sanctuary, this temple at Eleusis. It was almost destroyed in the second century AD, and he rebuilds it to Roman standards. He wanted to keep this thing alive, this thing that had spoken to his ancestors and all of our ancestors. In the West, going back to ancient Greek times, there was something very, very powerful and very special about this place uh, that's difficult to to capture in words. But I I think that, you know, at the center of Greek existence was this idea that you can't think your way into enlightenment um, or you can't read your way into enlightenment. If you read through Plato, what he says about philosophy, he says true philosophy is nothing else but the practice of dying and being dead. And so it, the concept that these Greeks were obsessed, obsessed with investigating death the same way they would investigate the other phenomena in the natural world. I mean, to them, Eleusis was more of a science than a religion. You went there to test the God hypothesis, to have this vision for yourself and peer back the veil on reality and see what's there.
0: What is the die before you die quote? Can you say that in the original language for us?
1: Right, so that comes to us in Greek, and it's inscribed on a plaque at Saint Paul's Monastery Mount Athos, in Greece, one of the holiest sites in Orthodox Christianity. Uh, but I think it does tap back because of this Greek lineage into ancient times, and it, it goes on Bethanis Bethanis If you die before you die, you won't die when you die. Um, And and I I think this is the kind of thing that was practiced at Eleusis, this kind of near-death experience, this pre-death experience that many walked away from saying was one of the most meaningful events of their lives.
0: And that ties in with what we're seeing at Johns Hopkins at the moment, right, that it's one of the top five most meaningful spiritual experiences that they've had. It's also being used as a tool to help avoid or deal with death anxiety for people who are perhaps terminally ill as well.
1: Right. And that I mean, to, I didn't answer your question, but that, that's why I went down the rabbit hole. So there's lots of ancient uh, literature, testimony data uh, for what it's worth. But, you know, in 2007 and eight, I was reading those studies. And since then, this, this crazy statistic has remained stable. Um, if you talk to Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins today, for example, he'll say that 75% of those volunteers over the past roughly 20 years, 75%, three and four will call their one and only dose among the most meaningful experiences of their lives, if not the most meaningful experience. And so not having done psychedelics, I can still look at that kind of stat and think there's probably something there.
0: <laughs> can you describe, based on what you know and what the research has suggested, what Eleusis would look like? Let's say that we're a bird's eye view or in a drone and we can go around. What would be happening? Who would be there? Where is it? What's, what's going on?
1: Yeah, it, 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 it's a pretty fun place. Where I think, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it attracted all kinds of different people. Um, I think it was probably less Burning Man and more Fight Club. Um, you know, there, <laughs> psychedelic Fight <laughs> psych Club. Yeah, I think it was a psychedelic fight club of the ancient world. Um, there was definitely a party atmosphere or, or, or a raucous nature to it. I mean, so it, it's a nine-day, nine-night extravaganza. It starts in Athens, and you make, you do this processional march you make a ritual pilgrimage, 13 miles from Athens all the way to Eleusis. And along the way, there's all kinds of rawty body behavior and women lifting skirts and telling dirty jokes and all kinds of fun stuff. And then you get there um, and it's serious as a heart attack. Uh, you know, you, um, you experience eventually the culmination of, of these nine days and nights is a night inside the temple, this all night, this panuchia, this all night affair in this torch-lit sanctuary that was dedicated to the goddess Demeter. And along with you, we think that the the temple could accommodate about 3,000 people. Uh, There were kind of like stairs that line the perimeter of this sanctuary. Um, At some point, a gong is struck, a light emits from uh, the center of the temple. Um, This is after a magic potion has been passed around. And here appears, uh, appears Persephone, the goddess of the underworld. And sometimes she's described as hold, uh, holding a baby, the baby Dionysus or the baby Yahus, And it's this idea that from death springs life. Um, and, you know, it's it's interpreted for a long time as just this very visceral initiation into uh, the cycles of fertility and the seasonal cycles. But there was something very personal happening to these people. Um, so they didn't just like see a stage act. It wasn't just stagecraft. Um, there may have been some of that going on, but again, all the testimony, what little survived tells us that there was something deeply personal about whatever they witnessed there. Hence, the theory that part of what they were witnessing was in the mind's eye, you know, with behind behind closed eyes, for example, something perhaps psychedelic.
0: It seems juxtaposed to have something that's incredibly sacred where only one lay person got to go, Marcus Aurelius, and yet there's this raucous nature on the way there. What's going on
1: it's It's a great question, I think you know um, so there's also a mardi Gras element right uh, there there's Mardi Gras and Fight club and burning it's it, it's a mix of all this. It's definitely a a public festival at some point right um, and uh, i th- i th- I think th- it's breaking down boundaries, it's breaking down physical boundaries and mental boundaries and it's kind of it's it's like it's intentional mind benders you know. Um, you know, making just just horrible jokes at you to kind of break down your ego before you even get there. And on your first visit, you're not you're not deemed eligible enough to see that magical vision. So you have to visit twice, which is why this whole initiation sequence lasts at least a year and a half, if not So you longer. don't drink.
0: You don't drink on the first time.
1: No, you become a moustes. That that was the title you got. on your first visit. You become a moustes, which is a mystic. It's only on your second visit that you became an epoktes, which in Greek is kind of like Um, You know, somebody who sees it all. Uh, So it was a long, long process to get there. Um, And, you know, part of it is intellectual instruction, and part of it is a really rigorous, you know, physical, exhausting march um, where you show up um, thirsty and hungry and just kind of beaten down. And I think those are the conditions after all that priming, or maybe just the right medicine would put you into the state of mind to actually experience some kind of death and rebirth.
0: Who would be invited?
1: So technically, anybody could go under two conditions. You had to speak some ancient Greek, and you can't have committed murder. So if you're not a murderer (laughs) and you know some Greek, you're in. Okay.
0: So I run run (laughs) nightclubs in the UK, and it would be interesting if my door policy was based on that. Excuse me, mate. Do you speak <laughs> Do you speak ancient Greek? And have you committed a murder? It's like, well, I can I can whack some Greek out to you, but I'm afraid on the second card, I'm I'm gonna have to go somewhere else. Um,
1: yeah, that might be the, the only nightclub where I'd be welcome.
0: Perhaps, perhaps indeed. What are the What are the mysteries? Then you talk about it throughout the book. What are the mysteries?
1: Right. So, Eleusis is one example of the mysteries that existed in the ancient world. I talk about the mysteries of Dionysus. In ancient Greece, there are lots of other mysteries, at Samothrace, the mysteries, the Egyptian mysteries of Isis and Osiris, uh, the mysteries of Magda Mater and different cults from the Near East. I mean, if you had to break it all down and say something very simple, I would would say that these are ceremonial experiences of death and rebirth. Uh, So something is happening where you're shedding your identity and you're losing that identity in some kind of ego-dissolving event, and you're being reborn, reawakened into a new identity, and that identity is something that is in accord with the natural world and in accord with the cosmos. Um, so clearly, there's an experience happening there. That, that's why I always say an experience of death and rebirth, not not just like, um, you know, a crazy theory or something you were listening to, uh, but, but a real visceral experience.
0: Why was all of this, if, it, if it's such a transformative experience, 3,000 people going, is it annual? Was it every year?
1: It was, uh, we think, around the fall equinox once a year, every year.
0: Got you. And it was lasting for quite a long time. And there's multiple different of these mysteries. If that's the case, why is it seemingly kept hidden then? Like sacred religion is written and repeated everywhere. Why is this sacred ritual not?
1: I've been asking myself the same question for many years. I mean, so I'll tell you, I'm not, I've been asked this question before, but I'm gonna answer it differently this this time. Um, I'm, I'm gonna say this, I, I, I think that, because the way I describe it, this ceremonial death and rebirth, my personal belief is that I, I think there was something to do with the anticipation. And I think that if you know what's about to happen to you, it takes away some of the magic. And I, And I think part of the reason this was kept secret is because you're not supposed to know what's happening to you. So imagine, if you will, like, initiation into a secret society. Right. And, you know, you, you come into the sacred chamber and you see a pool filled with alligators, hungry alligators. And, you know, your mates tell you, you got to hop into that pool and get out the other side. And then you're one of us. And you say, holy shit, why would I, why would I do that? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a death sentence. And so you hop in, you get through the whole thing and it's the most terrifying experience of your life and out you come reborn. Now, if you'd been told beforehand that those alligators were perfectly well fed, and didn't want anything to do with you, it would kind of take away from the experience. And so I think Eleusis is something similar. There was this priming going on and this anticipation that was being built up and this mythology that was transmitted from generation to generation. If you know exactly what's going to happen, if you know you're going to drink this potion and it's not going to kill you, but it will, you know, mess with your senses for a while. If you're told, you know, every detail of that, I don't, I don't think it's as special.
0: Why in that case, So I, I understand why it might have been kept quiet from the people who were going, but in terms of noting things down in history, if you've got over a couple of hundred years, several thousand, tens of thousands of people perhaps attending this, you would have thought that it would have been easier to find the most transformative experience of 30,000 people's lives. Why are you scrabbling for little scraps of paper and having to go to the Vatican and run off to Greece and ask to do testing on the inside of pots and stuff like that. Surely it would be written everywhere.
1: Well, I mean, I'd, I'd ask the same question about Jesus. I, I want to know what Jesus was was all about in this religion of two and a half billion people. And the guy never wrote a goddamn word down. And so we're we're left with these four somewhat contradictory gospels that are written a generation after, after his death. Uh, we're left with the epistles of St. Paul, who never met the guy in the flesh you know he receives all his information and these visionary experiences and yet it's the world's biggest religion man it's two and a half billion people and we don't have a word from this guy i mean how is that possible
0: very very good point so what happened like you've got this amazing transformative ceremony why is it still not happening today
1: so, there's a lot of different answers to that. Um, part of the answer, I talk about this in the book, I mean, part of the answer is the Christianized Roman Empire. The, the, the Christian emperors weren't too happy with Eleusis and the other pagan traditions stalking around messing up the show. And so, by the end of the fourth century AD, um, a number of decrees are issued in the second half of that century trying to do away with this stuff. They, they try to do away with nocturnal ceremonies which would include Eleusis, and then it comes back. Um, And, you know, a lot of the old libraries and statuary kind of disappear, Um, not exclusively at the hands of the Christianized Roman Empire, uh, but there's this generational loss of knowledge. And to your point, if nothing's written down, there's no doctrine, there's no dogma, there's no records for this stuff. (laughs) If anything's going to go up in smoke pretty quickly, it's something like these mysteries.
0: Have you got any idea of what the last time it happened would be? You said it went away, came back?
1: More or less. I mean, so in the last decade of the 4th century AD, 392 more or less is, is the last time I think we see this celebrated in a ritual way.
0: And how's the banning of these rituals described? Like what went on? Was it burning down the temple? And
1: See, at, at some point, this is why I say you can't exclusively blame the Christians. I mean, at some point, the barbarians get their hands on Eleusis. And the big question is, you know, how did they just march in and take this place down? Well, they did it once in the 2nd century. It happens again at the end of the fourth century, but, you know, part of me thinks that the Christian emperors kind of open the gates and just uh, let the rioters stampede.
0: Mm. So why does this matter? Like what what are the implications? If it's true, the broader implications other than Plato and Marcus Aurelius and a bunch of other famous people that we know about had a great time.
1: Because what if this is the real religion of the ancient Greeks? And, and what if this identity crisis that we have is a false one? You know, what if the people who created the foundations for our life today were the same people who were very obsessed with finding out a meaning for life? I mean, what if it, in addition to our faith traditions, in addition to the Bible, the New Testament, what if in addition to all that, these ancient philosophers and mystics had ideas that weren't that distinct from Christian mystics and some of these heretical sects like the Gnostics, or some of the very mainstream followers of Jesus. I mean, the big question I ask in the book is, you know, is the ancient Greek of the pagan world and their rites and practices at all related to the ancient Greek of the New Testament and their rites and practices? And you know, again, it's this Greek is the sacred language of Christianity. And so, by looking into these mysteries, um, what I'm really studying is what's called the pagan continuity hypothesis. Was there something about Plato and the rest of them and his philosophy and these rites at Eleusis? Is there some of that that actually made its way into Christianity, into the earliest Christian communities that we know for 300 years were practicing secret, illegal mystery traditions inside private homes and and graveyards? I mean, there's a lot of crossover.
0: It seems to me, looking back at what I know about Greek philosophy and what I understand about Christianity, that they do seem like two pieces of opposite puzzles or of the same puzzle perhaps that you had this incredibly grounded very uh virtuous not to woo woo that was limited at least in my experience to do with the greeks they had their gods but it wasn't a, a sort of a personal transcendent uh type of philosophy with regards to that whereas with christianity almost everything was about the theology. It was about the, the it p- paying tribute to the higher power and a lot less to do with the personal sovereignty that seems to be based around the Greeks. And it, it does seem odd that you could go from a society that we're now in 2020, that Ryan Holiday is making a living off in 2020. You could go from such a pragmatic society and philosophy into one that I think... Even to Christians now it, they're not superbly proud of a lot of the things that went on around that time there was It was very militant the way that Christianity kind of came aboard with the conversions and crusades and things like that. It really does feel hmm. like there is a missing piece there
1: hmm. and that's what i'm looking for and 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 part of the hard you know the hard investigation is that when you go looking for answers, you find this sacred territory split into two departments. Uh, So you know, in most universities, most institutions, theology is is very different from the classics. So if you're interested in what all the pagans were up to, you're studying classics. You're studying the ancient Greek works of Plato and others. If you're into the Jesus stuff, same language, by the way, um, you're suddenly in the theology department or divinity studies. And there's a quote I have in the book from an old scholar from like the early 20th century. Who says that you know the literature and civilization of a very extensive part of world history is very much neglected by the very ones best able to investigate it which is the classicists i mean these are the people who study uh you know all the the, that powerful syntax and grammar and and gorgeous language of the ancient greek and when you ask a classicist to read the new testament they read it a little bit differently which is why i got obsessed with this theory from 1978 um, it wasn't just Gordon Wasson and Albert Hoffman who I mentioned. It was Carl Ruck, this Harvard, Yale-trained classicist who reads the New Testament very differently from the way your average priest might read it. And he reads it with the lens of a pagan and with the lens of someone who was initiated into these mystery schools. Um, and I say, I say it with the lens of a pagan, which is not fair. He's a good Catholic boy, uh, <laughs> just like me, just like me.
0: What, outside of the uh, rhetoric and what was written down, and the presence of ergot in the uh, barley or in the wheat. Um, what other convincing evidence have you found?
1: Um, I, I'm looking at everything, right? So part of me is looking for that hard scientific data. Is is there actual, which we haven't talked about yet, but is, is there any, you know, archaeobotanical data for one of these spiked beers, these ergotized beers, or one of these spiked wines out there? I mean, that that's a whole separate question, but, like, what's in the literature? Um You know, just from the literary perspective, and this is what classicists do: is they read the old texts and find out what's there. I mean, um, I didn't spend a lot of time reading Dioscorides when I was learning Latin and Greek, Uh, but afterwards I started reading his *Materia Medica*, and he writes this. Dioscorides is the father of drugs, and he writes this massive treatise in ancient Greek in the first century AD, the same time the Gospels are being written. And in his magnum opus, he has all these formulas, these recipes for spiking wine with all kinds of funky herbs and plants and different things. And he says even at one point that one of these plants will, will cause not unpleasant visions. Fantasias uh, u So he's talking about psychedelics at the same time that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing their gospels, um, and later John. And it makes you wonder, you know, if the Greeks knew about all this stuff, if they knew about pharmacology, what are the odds that some of that pharmacology would make its way into the same ancient Greek speaking communities who had inherited all this stuff from their ancestors. Um, One place you would look at is Corinth, for example. You know, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you hear it at every wedding you go to. Um, Corinth today is 45 minutes to the west of Eleusis, this ancient spiritual capital. Now, what are the odds that an early Corinthian who heard about this, uh, this son of God born of a virgin with this new magical gift of immortal wine, this magic potion, What are the odds that either they themselves or someone they knew was not initiated at Eleusis, where this magic potion had been splashing around for for centuries and centuries? And so to me, the Gospels are playing off of this pagan continuity.
0: What research has been done into the archaeobotany or the archaeochemistry of it?
1: So that's the fun part. That's the fun part. Um, The short answer is not a hell of a lot. So I had, to, I had to try and find out the, the scholars who were working on this stuff. And I eventually came across Andrew Coe, who's at MIT. Uh, I mean, I, I would say the world's leading archaeochemist. Um, he's responsible, amongst other things, for unearthing the world's oldest wine cellar in Galilee. The same Galilee where Jesus is born, except it dates it, da- it dates well before Jesus to about 1700 BC from the Canaanite period, and it's wine that again through gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, uh, they're finding is spiked with all kinds of funky stuff like honey storax terebin cypress cedar etc etc now you know you might say oh it's just interesting you know aromatic flavor profile enhancing type stuff and that's certainly true but the big question i'm always asking andrew is were there other psychoactive additives psychotropic additives and theoretically his answer has always been yes uh why not let's go find the data so you know based off some leads from him i was pouring into these archaeobotany journals and eventually came across um a couple different things. So one hit for ancient beer, one hit for ancient wine, Um, both discovered in the 1990s and largely ignored by the academic community. And as best as I can tell, like never reported to the public, Uh, just archaeologists doing what they do, finding amazing things. And there it sits in a a journal. Uh, But in Spain from the second century BC, uh, I came across this study of an ancient Greek sanctuary. There were Greeks in Spain, just like there were Greeks in, in Greece and Italy. And from the second century BC, they found this tiny chalice about a couple inches high, and it went under analysis, and they found the remains of beer and ergot. So there's your ergotized beer, this crazy idea from 1978. We now have you know actual scientific data to corroborate that, um, which is pretty crazy.
0: I'm trying to think about what the reason would be. I understand that the Christian church was being pretty forthcoming. At trying to convert everybody, they were, you know, they were, they were full on. They were, it was a big relationship with the Christians. Um, but I'm trying to work out what the the fear that they would have had, as opposed to repurposing the existing ritual and just rebranding it, um, why they would get rid of it. And I think I've heard you talk about this before that it would uh, taking a psychoactive substance gives you direct access to God in one form or another, you no longer actually need the medium that is the church or the priest or the, um, the the religion at wide. You just, it's you and him speaking directly to him. Is that your sort of conception of it as well?
1: I think that's, again, I think that's part of the answer. Um, it's hard for me to figure out what was going on in the fourth century. And I, and I think I'm on record saying something like I sympathize with the church fathers and I'm not sure what I mean by that, but, um, (laughs) You know, but they were, they were in the business of, of church building, which at the time is in the business of nation building. And how do you do that with this secret illegal cult where people are meeting in private with no standards? Who the hell knows what's going on behind closed doors or literally underground in family catacombs? I mean, this is where Christianity took root in private houses and catacombs for 300 years. There was no brick and mortar churches. There were no physical basilicas until Constantine in the fourth century AD. So once it comes above ground, literally, and once um, you know, Christians aren't being hunted down by lions, uh, you know, how do you get this faith off the ground? And, and I think that you need standards and you need dogma, which is why all these church councils get together and they figure out which books go in and which don't. And yeah, there was a hack job going on. I mean, there was, you know, the, um, the, the, the Gnostic literature disappears. Um, All these texts from Nag Hammadi Egypt, for example, that were dug up in the middle of the 20th century, and these beautiful, beautiful testimonies that talk about a different Jesus, like in the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which is now, I think, over 125 years old. Um, You know, there were other versions of the faith out there, and slowly but surely, they start to disappear in the 4th and 5th centuries. Now, again... Part of that is the church trying to do what it does, which is you know build a bureaucracy, create something coherent, um, which they've never been able to do successfully, right? This is why we have the schism between the Catholic and Orthodox. And then we have the Protestants and now we have the evangelicals and everything else. I mean, it's hard to hold this thing together. What, what I sense in the early years was, was an attempt to uh, cohere um, uh, a religion that was very much um, uh, in danger of disappearing. Uh, and along with that goes all these secrets and all these mysteries.
0: Talk us through your experience researching in the Vatican. Obviously, this sounds pretty heretical. But why Why did they even let you near Rome?
1: I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. So what do you do? Do you email um, the Pope?
0: Do you send him a DM on Twitter? What happens?
1: Yeah, I was like, um, you know, Frank it's Brian. Um, you got some cool stuff. I'd love to see it Uh, (laughs) there. It's, it's, it's not that, I mean, it is, it's very difficult to, to get your way into the Vatican secret archives and, and the catacombs. Um, You know, I I was very honest with with folks. You know, I talked to the archivist at the Secret Archives and the Archive of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which holds these Inquisition records, and I went underground with this Vatican archaeologist to look at the frescoes and these catacombs. And I said, you know, I would tell people, here's my crazy idea about this psychedelic Eucharist, and um, I think it's just as crazy as you do, uh, because I don't know. I haven't seen the hard scientific data for it. I'm out there looking for it all over the Mediterranean. Um, I'd like to know if there's any evidence here. Um, you know, so part of it is just asking them if if we could test different vessels and different chalices, which they're sitting on in the hundreds of thousands, you know, in their own handwriting from the sixteenth century or the fifteenth century, is there is there a mention of these magical potions? Uh, and the short answer is there is. They're, you know they they were they were hunting and targeting witches, um, at least partly because of their knowledge of these traditional healing mechanisms. Um, and sometimes visionary medicines uh so it's it's all there preserved um in the literature.
0: What does it feel like being underneath the the absolute epicenter for the Christian faith rooting through i mean you're in the necropolis, which is this sort of right. bit below the the Sistine, not below the Sistine Chapel, below um, the Vatican, right? And there's multiple the St. Peter, Peter's. Is it below yeah. St. Peter's Basilica? Just multiple layers yeah. below that. What's it feel like? You must have been. It must. It's proper Dan Brown shit.
1: It was. Uh, that, that's what I said uh, to the priest who was with me. This is this is Dan Brown shit, and I felt like I, I'd never get out. Like there was a you know uh, uh, there would be the clank of a gate, and that'd be the, the last time I breathed fresh air uh that everyone they're all cool man they're every everyone's very cool in the vatican i might be one of the few people to say that but everyone uh they're all super cool to me um in the officio scavi the excavation office there um i was looking at you know what, what could be one of the first mosaics one of the first representations of christian art directly under saint peter's basilica in one of these tombs the tombs of the julii and there you see uh these vines just curling all around this figure seated on a horse And I'm not the first person, Uh, art historians have said there's a real mix-up here of of Jesus and Dionysus, all these Dionysian vines, you know, uh, uh, rolling their way around this this mosaic. It's hard to know what to make of that, and it's hard to know what was going on down there. Uh, Because from the records we have, there was some pagan shit going on underneath the Vatican in the early days. This is where they went, like other catacombs, to commune with the dead. They went there to meet Saint Peter before there was a St. Peter's Basilica, they went there to camp out amongst these graves and host these parties, which the Professor Emeritus of History at Yale University calls chill-outs. They went to have chill-outs with the dead, uh, to drink their wine and have a feast every day in some cases. So, I mean, you know, Rome was a fun place to be.
0: How does the Mysteries at Eleusis relate to the Holy Sacrament?
1: I mean, well, there's the big question, and the how I try to answer that in the book is by using the mysteries of Dionysus as the translator. So you have all these mysteries at Eleusis, right? And it's these pilgrims making this march, drinking this potion, having this vision. It's all administered by the state. So even though it's technically open to lots of different people, as we mentioned, um, it's a very formal event. At some point, you have the mysteries of Dionysus, and it takes the concept of a magical potion takes it out of the sanctuary, away from the temple. So where are the mysteries of Dionysus being celebrated? Outdoors, open air churches in the forests and mountains. It's people getting smashed in these drunken orgies in honor of the God of wine, right? And then here comes Jesus, not too long after that. In fact, at the same time, I mean, in Galilee, ancient Israel, uh, ancient Palestine, you will find images of Dionysus um, all around Galilee. I mean, so, you know, his cult was there at the same time, that the cult of Jesus was just gathering steam. Um, And what is Jesus doing with this magic potion? He's saying, not only can you take it out of the temple, not only can you take it to the open air church, but take this magic potion that makes you immortal, nothing less than that, and take it into your dining room. So I, I think by domesticating these mysteries, I think that for some early Christians, I think that's how they would have read the early accounts of Jesus. Here's this guy taking an immortality potion, that's his blood the same way that the one of Dionysus was described, by the way, the blood of Dionysus. And he's taking it inside the dining room and saying, you can celebrate this at home. It's okay to do this at home, because at the time that was a sacrilege in Eleusis. You were not allowed to celebrate that at home. Um, we have accounts of people trying to do that. And it was this massive scandal in Athens. And so here comes Jesus with a new model to preserve, in some cases, these mysteries.
0: Well, you see the imagery of the Last Supper And you've got, everyone looks fairly cozy, you know, they look pretty, (laughs) they look pretty merry at that situation. I'm aware it's not a photograph.
1: No, but we, I mean, we have the accounts, aside from the, aside from Leonardo's imaginings of it, uh, it's for, you know, the Eucharist, the Last Supper is recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And in John, it's really, it's weird. In John, it's different. Um, it's Jesus giving a sermon outside, but he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about his flesh and blood, and he uses really weird language that, by the way, is not Jewish. You know, so people think about the Last Supper and this cozy affair amongst friends as this, you know, this Passover meal before his death, this mourning of Jesus before his death. Um, I can't think of a single Jewish dinner where where, where human flesh and blood is being served. Uh, And yet here comes Jesus saying, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Not will have, not will go to heaven. Right here tonight, if you drink and eat, you are an immortal. This is the same, the same way these sacraments were described by the pagans. And think about it, like munching on this flesh. It's a really evocative word that Jesus uses in Greek there, "drogon" to munch on my flesh. It's like this really graphic, visceral event that's being described. Um, so who the hell knows what was going on?
0: Did, did you totally lose your shit with how many questions you have to ask yourself? Because every situation that you come across, everything that you find out is that like, oh, that's interesting. And now here's 3,000 questions that, <laughs> that are implied by me knowing this one extra bit. Uh,
1: you, dis- you described the, the torturous process of, of me talking to my editor for a couple of years. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> but this chapter is so important, man. They're, they're going to love this chapter. You know, it's, it's really essential to the argument.
0: One thing I was thinking about while reading the book was how our existing cultural structures affect the way that we experience psychedelics. I know that this may not necessarily be your precise field of study, but it's an interesting question that I want to ask you anyway. So can you imagine mm. what would be seen by a human who grows up in a lab with no cultural input? So what would they see like how much is the transcendent effect intrinsic to the drug and how much is enabled by the existing narrative frameworks that we have in our own minds?
1: Hmm. That's a great question, man. Um, it's, you know, it, it, do- it dovetails, it dovetails to my work. I mean, I do talk to the clinical psychologists about this stuff and the psychopharmacologists what everyone agrees on is that set and setting are integral. I mean, this is not, it's not a wonder drug. Um, and more importantly, psychedelics just are not for everybody, which is why they've been successful in their trials at Hopkins and NYU by screening certain people out. Um, you know, it, it takes it takes um, a really heroic, emotional, psychological preparation to prepare for this stuff. And you know, just just think about what the word psychedelic means in Greek. It means to manifest the contents of the psyche, is how I translate it, psica And so when that happens, I mean, before you even begin thinking about that, why don't you try dusting off those contents for yourself? I mean, you know, you dream about them every night. Have you addressed some of those traumas from your childhood? Have you addressed some of those pitfalls in your relationships? Um, some of that, that shadow work that plays out in your everyday life. There's lots of work that you can do before psychedelics. And which is part of the reason I haven't done them. I mean, there's lots of stuff that you can do, um, including mindfulness and meditation and, and all the rest of it. Um, you know, so once you get to that point, when when all this stuff is being laid bare, and I don't know what would happen to someone who was grown in a lab, um, uh, that'd be an interesting experiment. Uh, it'd be hard to get FDA approval for that. Uh, but, uh, you know, what's what, what people are, pl- I think people are playing on memories and people are playing you know, on the archetypal things that live inside the subconscious of all humans,
0: uh, yeah. which is really
1: powerful stuff. There's this thing, this th- th- these images come out. I mean, you know, a Christian will have an image of a of an Indian deity, and you know, uh, some guy in the UK will have an image of a Mayan god, and it's really hard to explain why that's the case.
0: That's what that's what fascinated me about it. I wonder, obviously, as you say, slightly unethical and um, perhaps unrealistic experiment to run. But it would be fascinating to see because that would be the ultimate um, control. You would be able to control exclusively for cultural inputs for all of the existing narratives. There's certain things you get the visual distortion that almost everybody says in terms of geometric patterns, for instance. Mm. So you perhaps always going to have that uh, no matter Mm. what you're looking at, no matter who you are, what you've grown up, what your thought patterns are like inside of your mind. But, can you imagine if people reported these people who were grown up without these cultural inputs, mm-hmm. cultural narratives, and frameworks inside of their mind and they reported similar manifestations which would be this is something universally held within us all? I don't know. I just thought mm-hmm. that was I thought that was a really interesting thought experiment
1: I like that I mean, but you know some of the researchers do do write about this, Bill Richardson. Uh, who's one of the researchers at Hopkins, does write about this, about the encounter with the archetypes. I mean, there are, are people who haven't been trained in or, to the best of their knowledge, haven't been uh, substantively exposed to some of these traditions that do pop up, I mean, kind of spontaneously, like, you know, gods and goddesses from different faith traditions that just don't belong in the contents of someone's psyche on the eastern coast of the United States. And yet in in, in comes this stuff.
0: Did you discuss with anybody about the potential dosage or an equivalent dosage that people may have been consuming?
1: In the ancient see, that's what's really hard, man. Uh, so even though, even though we found some of the archaeobotanical, archaeochemical evidence, uh, t- to this day, to the best of my knowledge, the, this on potion or some of this spiked wine hasn't been recreated to the standards of antiquity. Um, so, I mean, that, that's something I very much want to do, even with this find in Spain, we still want to retest uh, that chalice and, and, and really figure out, like, what was the formula here? What were the measurements? Uh, because by all accounts, like, an, uh, ergotized beer is not the most pleasant trip. I mean, it's kind of terrifying. I mean, ergotism traditionally leads to all kinds of really unfun things like gangrene and convulsions and, and stuff like that. But maybe what, I'm, what I've been thinking recently is that maybe it was a very low dose and other folks have mentioned this to me who are more experienced than me, uh, but maybe it was a low dose that again, just kind of um, that rejiggered the brain somehow that just set it, I mean, just, just to the left of, of normal after all that fasting, maybe some sleep deprivation, the long march from, from Athens, for example, a low dose, a lower dose of, of ergotized beer could have been the kind of thing um to have a really powerful vision i don't know it's
0: just there's so many questions man has anything come out since your book was published has there been are you continuing to research are you still is there a sequel like what what's your yes. current oh there is a sequel wow
1: it's all it's all happening man um as just one one tiny example um national geographic and others reported in November, I think it was, about this, uh, you can Google it, the Pinwheel Cave, the Pinwheel Cave in California uh, from the Chumash tribe. I think it's only a few hundred years old, so it's it's not going into deep antiquity. But about 400 or so years ago, uh, they found this cave with uh, a Datura flower uh, painted on the ceiling of this cave. And inside crevices in the rock, they actually found the organic remains of Datura quids, which is a very hallucinogenic uh, plants flower um, it has contains all these tropane alkaloids the same kind of alkaloids that may have been present in these wine potions I mentioned that Dioscorides was writing about in the first century AD uh, so a very interesting find and it was called the very first archaeochemical evidence uh, for the coexistence of rock art and psychedelic drugs and I mean that happens in 2020 for no reason whatsoever um, at the time that all this you know we're talking about all this stuff so you know, Every time I open the the computer, there, there's another story out there.
0: What's next for you?
1: Uh, so we're, we're still doing uh, this documentary series and um, pushing forward on that. I am writing uh, a second book that is uh, very much related to but distinct from the first one without giving too much away. Um, lots more clues, um, lots of more ancient signals and You know, the big question, what does this mean for the future of medicine, religion, society, all those kind of questions in the midst of a global pandemic and economic turmoil and civil unrest and political discontent? I mean, I think it's a very interesting moment that we're living in and people are looking for meaning. And isn't it interesting to think about this continuity, right? Not just from the Greeks and the Christians, but maybe to us. And maybe we're living at this moment where some of this technology is, is being resurrected. It's, uh, it's a big question.
0: Well, think about what people have turned to in this time of need. Copies of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations and paperback were sold out at the beginning of 2020. Uh, you think, well, why would someone go 1,800 years back to a philosophy that, uh, was it Aristotle or Plato, that thought the brain only existed to get rid of heat out of the body? And you're like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> on some stuff, they were so right, and on other stuff, so far off. In germ theory, you hadn't gone through. When, as uh, Marcus Aurelius is dying from the plague, as he's caught in the, uh, the Antonine Plague, the, he's struggling to breathe because of the amount of incense that's burning in the room, because they thought the incense would get rid of the plague. It would help to get rid of the air particles in the air. And all that they were doing was forcing Marcus Aurelius to... Like, Smell at someone's awful auntie's house, like the, the, the spiritual, the spiritual auntie who's always burning incense. It was just like forcing him to do that. So on one side, you have these people who are obviously incredibly detached from what we understand now. And yet the more universal elements, the things that they were able to observe more accurately, human nature, meaning flourishing. What does it mean to be virtuous, to have temperance? Those things are what people in 2021 are going back to. They're relying more on the writings of Marcus Aurelius than they are on anybody for the last 1,800 years. And this Crescent, this story arc that we're coming back to, psychedelics, precisely the same. If what you say is true, if what you've discovered is correct, and it's taken us around about 2,000 years to start using therapeutically something which could have aided the last two millennia of human civilization then we have a lot of catching up to do and it is just fascinating the way that these things are coming in full circle
1: i agree that's beautifully put man i, I couldn't say it better than that you just you just wrote the back cover that's perfect
0: fine that's that's i'll, I'll give you the rights we can we can discuss deals off air man i've uh <laughs> I, i've loved today brian it's so fascinating your dedication to this you've been told it a million times but your dedication to this project is ridiculous it's psychopathic um and in 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 the good way in the in the great way not in the brian rose from london real way um where can people go they want to keep <laughs> up to date with what it is that you're doing where should they head
1: i'm not going to spell my romanian name so i'll say um the if you go to the uh, you'll see my, my homepage there and it links to all my social media. So I, I try and keep it updated and um, I'm I'm usually terrible about it, but I'm I'm better on Twitter and Instagram. So you can see some updates there.
0: Everything will be linked in the show notes below, including a link to the immortality key wherever you can get a hold of it. Man, I'm gonna have to get you back on. We're gonna have to talk about the new book and the when Tom Hanks decides to accept the role and whatever new discoveries we've got. So round two will happen soon.
1: Um I'm I'm there, brother.